Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. Dame Anne Dowling is President of the Royal Academy of Engineering in London and she's the guest on this Women in Leadership podcast. One reason to do something about diversity is we need more engineers. The UK has less professional women engineers than any other country. It's around about 9% of professional engineers are women. She's a firm believer in diversity in all aspects of life, but especially in her own sphere. Dame Anne Dowling sees huge opportunities for women in engineering in the future, and the numbers are staggering. The predictions vary, but that we're short, we have a shortfall of about 50 to 60,000 engineers per annum between now and 2022. Education is one area she sees could really help prepare young women for the profession. And she says we need to start changing perceptions about engineering in the home at a very early age. It almost starts before children start school, that their families and they think of them as either being um, creative or sciencey, but actually engineering is all about being creative. Professor Dowling is an expert in combustion, vibration and acoustics engineering, focusing on the development of more efficient, quieter road vehicles and aeroplanes. She was the first female professor in engineering at the University of Cambridge and formerly held posts at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and the California Institute of Technology. At a recent public lecture as a guest of WISER at Trinity College Dublin on diversity and inclusion, a value proposition for engineering, she told me a little bit about her work and her career and why she so passionately believes in diversity and getting more young women to study engineering. Um, I'm Professor Dayman Dowling and I'm President of the Royal Academy of Engineering in, in, uh, in London. Uh, but, but I'm also a Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Cambridge. That's quite an impressive CV and that didn't happen overnight. <laughs> well, how did your career progress from the time you went to study engineering in the beginning and what did you study in engineering? Uh, actually, I didn't study engineering at the beginning. Uh, my first degree was in mathematics. Um, but, but I always knew that for me, mathematics was a tool. I wanted to um, do things with it. And I um, found out what I'd like to do through a summer job when I worked at the, um, the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough. And it was at the time when Concorde was doing its proving flights and it was very noisy. Uh, and it appeared that it might not be allowed to land in the US because of the noise that it made. Uh, suddenly we had um, uh, an aircraft, passenger aircraft, large aircraft flying at different speeds from ever before. Um, making noise in different ways. And it wasn't well understood at all. And this was clearly an important area, uh, a fascinating subject. And I'd been studying fluid mechanics, and that was part of understanding what was going on. Uh, so that took me into um, the, the, my PhD area. It was clear that I, if I wanted to really work in that area, it would be helpful to have a PhD. And uh, that took me into uh, engineering at Cambridge. And when you studied engineering in Cambridge at PhD level, how many years did that take and what happened to your career after that? Okay, so the PhD was about three and a half years. I didn't solve the Concord noise problem, uh, but uh, what my supervisor 
um, really showed, and I working with him, was it was a lot more complicated than people had been saying. And once you'd got the geometry fixed like that, there wasn't a lot you could do. Uh, but it was allowed to land in, in the US. And uh, immediately after my PhD, I got a, um, a junior research fellowship in one of the Cambridge colleges, which would fund me for three years to do whatever research I wanted to do. So great privilege. Um, I wanted to start to move into different areas. Uh, and um, I spent some time at um, uh, Rolls-Royce to get some industrial experience, Rolls-Royce in Bristol, where I, I went to work in the combustion department. And after that, with the, um, uh, what I'd learned about combustion and my background in acoustics, I started to do some work on an instability, which is an interaction between acoustics and combustion. I found the aircraft industry wasn't very interested in noise, uh, but um, the Admiralty was really interested in underwater noise. And so my, my noise generated by turbulence proved to be really interesting to them. So I started to work on submarine noise and, and various, uh, uh, that led me into a, a, a range of unsteady uh, problems like reducing the drag on ships um, and um, the, also reducing the noise of um, tyres, tyres in contact with the road um, where you've got surfaces vibrating. So I went into a range of different things. At the heart was trying to reduce noise, trying to have clean low emission combustion um, and um, efficient um, things, as I say, perhaps lower drag. And, I mean, that's very topical now with the, the new runway uh, in Heathrow. But it sounds like you've been working on this whole area for a long time, but the rest of us are only catching up <laughs> now. <laughs> well, I really stopped working on aircraft noise after my PhD. It was probably almost uh, 20 years later. I... Uh, been working on noise in various aspects and unsteady flow, uh, but uh, in a sabbatical at, at, at MIT, both my husband and I were, were working there, and we'd have um, discussions with colleagues about what really constrained the aerospace industry. And um, we believed the number one constraint was around capacity. Airports where people wanted to travel from were at full capacity. No one wants an extra airport near a city. No one wants an extra runway uh, near their home. And it, it all boiled down to, to noise. And so in these lunches with colleagues at MIT, we were tossing around ideas. Could, could you design an aircraft that would be inaudible outside the airport perimeter, so quiet that its noise would be no more than the background level in an urban environment? And, uh, and, and from that, we, we came out with the sorts of things you'd have to consider to design such an aircraft. Uh, and then, while we were there, uh, uh, the Cambridge MIT Institute was established looking for proposals to do something different, very innovative. And, and so, jointly with um, colleagues at MIT, we put in a proposal to work on a silent aircraft, uh, which we eventually did, and came up with a conceptual design uh, it has to be said uh, that the silent aircraft has not been manufactured, although what we did show was good feasibility on the concept. It was a very collaborative project. We had, um, uh, I suppose in the end, we had about 40 people working on the, re the research, but we also had about 30 companies involved. Um, Rolls-Royce and Boeing were really important ones in that. Uh, NASA was involved. Um, and then uh, a a whole suite of, um, of other companies. Um, what, uh, what we came up with, it would 
it would be very hard to manufacture, and it's only a concept. But the idea was picked up by NASA and Boeing. NASA have done some wind tunnel tests on the aerodynamics and, uh, and some um, aeroacoustic tests and a wind tunnel on the noise sources. So the, the idea persists. But that project then got me back into aircraft noise because one of the things that it showed was um, some noise sources you, you could absorb the sound from, but other ones you really needed to reduce at source. And an important one was jet noise. And, and then after that, I got working back into working on aircraft noise again. As you say, big interest in it now. And, um, and now my re current research is, is focusing on the uh, kind of things that you can do to reduce jet noise. As l other noise sources in the aircraft have reduced, we're, we're hearing um, some weaker ones that weren't so perceptible before. And one of those is the, the noise from the combustion. So that combines something else that I've been working on for, for some time. So yeah, I'm back in, in aircraft noise again now. I'm guessing there aren't that many women involved in this very specialised area of engineering or in engineering generally. What has it been like for you as being a leading <laughs> woman in this area? Um, has it been tough even coming up through the lines? <laughs> well, I, no, actually, it's been quite pleasurable. I think the... The, the kind of engineering that brings environmental benefits does attract a high, higher proportion of women. Um, so I'm by no means the, the only one. Uh, but certainly when I was starting, there weren't that many um, women doing engineering. To be honest, I found that almost... That could be an advantage, because if I spoke at a conference and there weren't many women speaking, people remembered me. Um, and uh, so I think I got known... Uh, in the subject uh, that I was working in, uh, perhaps more easily than, than men might have, have been. And um, it, um, it, it's not really been a, a disadvantage. I've just done things I enjoy doing, really, and it's turned out okay. <laughs> Good for you. Now, you're here to speak this evening in Trinity um, about the, the aspect of gender and how it will stimulate in, in innovation. And I know um, that the Royal Academy of Engineers has a diversity and inclusion programme in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it was funded and what it's achieved or what it is achieving at the moment? Uh, yes, yeah, so the, um, the Royal Academy of Engineering has always been very interested in diversity. And I think the work probably started about, um, I'm not sure, uh, 2007, 2008, with a look at its own fellowship. Um, and the, the, the academy is, it, is the most, um, um, it's the group of the most distinguished engineers in the UK, and they're elected by their peers. And just left to its own devices, it wasn't electing enough women. And so that as, as an academy, we made a big effort to be proactive and, and look for excellence in engineering wherever it might be. And uh, we are now recruiting, uh, electing more women fellows, but it will be a long time before we, uh, you know, we get to where we want to be in that. So in our own internal processes, we've been concerned about diversity for quite a while. Also, we are very concerned about the engineering profession. We face a real shortage of, of engineers in the, in, in the UK. Uh, it's predicted, well, the, the, the predictions vary, but that we're short, we have a shortfall of about 50 to 60,000 engineers per annum between now and uh, 2022. A shortfall? A shortfall. Uh, and it means almost doubling the number of graduates um, g 
going into being produced in engineering. So it's a, it's a huge gap. It's partly because uh, of the number of people retiring. It's because our companies are doing well and, and predict additional requirements. But we're already facing a, a shortfall with, with companies not being able to recruit um, all the uh, engineers that they want. I think probably the really big international names can uh, because they, they, they've got the name and the prestige and they're able to recruit graduates, but their supply chain is already finding that uh, they have unfilled vacancies. We've been doing this for a while, but of course with the vote on the EU referendum uh, earlier this year, and we may have some constraints around immigration, it could, easily, you know, it could, get, even, could even get worse. So one reason to do something about um, uh, diversity is we need more engineers. It, the, the UK has is less professional women engineers than any other country. It's around about 9% of professional engineers are women. In, in the EU or the OECD or in the world? I think in the world. Um, the, I, I mean, I don't know, but, but in the sort of top 20, 30 size of countries. Um, if we take... Um, what do you put that down to? Do think well... It's... Our education is very specialised from 16 onwards. So 16 to 18, people are usually only studying three subjects, and those could be two, two maths and, and physics. Uh, what we find is that at the exams at age 16, uh, there's parity between boys and girls, and in fact the girls do slightly better than the boys in science. Uh, but they don't continue those subjects on into the, uh, into the sixth form uh, to study after, after 16. And uh, of those taking A-level physics, only 20% are girls. So there's a big drop-off at age 16. And quite often those decisions are made earlier, at least a, a year earlier than that. And it, it's, it's before people are really thinking about what careers they want to do. But, but also, um, those of us in engineering don't do a good job of portraying the breadth of, of engineering. I think most people think that it means working on a construction site or with big machinery or something like that. Whereas, in fact, there's hardly a part of the, uh, of the things that uh, surround us, whether it, it's healthcare, communications, um, e you know, e even, even leisure, the, cre the creative arts and filmmaking, or, of, of course, construction and aircraft are there, uh, are there too. But such a widespread um, of the things that make... Uh, that underpinned everything that we use relies on engineers. And I don't think we do enough to um, explain how broad the jobs being done by, by engineers um, are, or indeed how important they are. I mean, it, it, you know, addressing the big challenges we face, whether it's uh, uh, sustainable energy or enough water or enough food, and certainly health care will all be, uh, all require. Uh, the skills of engineers. So I think at the time decisions are made, people don't realise what uh, interesting jobs they, engineering can lead to. Uh, and so we're interested in skills because there's a skill shortage, because some very talented women are missing out on some great career opportunities, doing things they might really enjoy doing. Um, but they've made decisions at 15 that rule them out. So is there a need to change the educational system uh, as so well as role models? Lots of things. So um, 
there's things like more career advice in schools, um, uh, bringing some project work into schools so people can don't just learn science but learn actually why, why we'd be interested in, in knowing about science. But almost the bigger message, and it, it, it almost starts before um, children start school, that their families and they think of them as either being um, creative or sciencey. But actually engineering is all about being creative. Yes, we use science, but, but we do it to design things, to um, uh, have imagination, to think of uh, uh, things that might lead to a better world, and then be able to bring those into fruition. So that messaging, it, it, it's not just careers advice at 15, it, it, it's actually society thinking about um, even, very creative people may well be interested in engineering. I often think when you walk into engineering departments, and I've been in a few of them in some of the universities, that they're actually quite dull environments, that there's no artwork on the wall, no <laughs> sculptures. And you often wonder if there was a little bit more creativity uh, visible on the walls and the surroundings, you know, in nice gardens or something like that, that it might stimulate that sort of innovation or creative right. thinking. Well, you uh, you should come to uh, uh, my department. I was head of engineering at Cambridge, and one of the things that we've run for a number of years, really successful, successfully, is a photographic competition, where we ask people to um, to photograph um, it, uh, something related to engineering. Of course, because we're a research department, many people photograph things in their research, and they are the most Stunning images, they really are beautiful. Sometimes it's what people have seen through a microscope. So that you'll have these, these nanostructured devices which look incredible. But, but actually, um, it could be um, uh, unsteady motion within flames. Um, and, and you get the most marvelous colors and surfaces and, and, and so on. So um, artwork uh, is, can come out of, of engineering. Um, and of course, you see it also in many of the constructions. Uh, but I think you're right, we don't celebrate this enough. And probably we, we don't share it enough. What can women bring to engineering? Do we think differently? Are we all the same, really? We just brought up differently? Or <laughs> is there a different mindset with women? And you know, what could engineering benefit from by having more women? involved in engineering? Well, of course, engineers are designing products and services, so it is extraordinary that um, only 8% of them are representing the interests of half of the population. So I think, first of all, they would be fully engaged with what society or maybe the customer base requires. There's evidence that, that having di diverse teams, and we've been talking particularly about women, and women are truly underrepresented, but actually so are some ethnic minorities as well. So truly diverse uh, teams working in a collaborative way that they can make better decisions. Tell me about the Royal Academy of Engineers. Um, what do they do? Uh, we work across a, a number of fronts. What the strength of the academy is its fellows, which are, uh, as I said earlier, elected by their peers and very distinguished. We work on promoting and supporting excellence in engineering. And we, we do it with um, activities with, with school teachers, for example. We're making um, 
uh, projects, ideas, and materials available to to to, uh, to school teachers to help them to enthuse their their pupils. So we do an outreach activity to schools. We support researchers and uh, innovators, so we are able to uh, offer um, uh, uh, fellowships and uh, research professorships, which we always do in collaboration with, with industry for some of the uh, most outstanding academics. Uh, and uh, we have enterprise fellowships for early career researchers, usually, who are seeking to commercialise an idea. The fellowship provides some support for a year, but the thing that it really provides that you couldn't get anywhere else is mentoring from some of from our fellows and some of those have uh, established highly successful companies themselves so they are able to give great uh, advice to uh, people starting out on that route we also um, provide the evidence for um, government to, uh, to base policy on so we, we work on a, a range of policy reports. Do they listen well. to you though when you come up with policy recommendations? Yes I think they often do yes so what we are providing is a very uh, rigorous uh, evidence-based and it's a case of bringing the evidence together and although of course there'll be recommendations based on that having an independent body that um, can speak authoritatively on the underpinning science and engineering is, is extremely helpful to government. I was interested in what you're saying about mentoring. I know from just anecdotally and from some experience that a lot of women when they leave university having studied engineering never do anything with their engineering again. What, what do you say to them or how do you encourage them to stick with it? Actually the, the statistics that I know which are from the UK is the proportion of women after graduating going into engineering is about the same as the men. Um, but there it's a bit of a leaky pipeline, and there's more women m moving out of engineering um, subsequently. So one of the uh, work packages that we've been doing around diversity has been with our diversity leadership group, which is 50 companies, chaired by one of my vice presidents, Alan Cook. And what they are doing is, is sharing best practice, and they've come up with uh, the 10 steps that every company should have. And it's about what companies should be doing to make sure that they have the right processes and practices in place, that, that every member of their workforce feels valued and included, um, and that they're all able to thrive. And, of course, what you find is that, that things that are good for women, which might be things like having... Uh, um, uh, flexible working practices, having a real care on people's career opportunities. Uh, but the things that are, are good for women are, of course, good for the whole workforce, so everybody benefits. I, I think perhaps some engineering companies have been a bit slow to adopt modern working practices of the sort that, that employees expect to have these days. Especially uh, millennials, as they yes. say. Yeah. And, and so um, I think uh, this has been very positive. Uh, and Companies are really keen. Engineers are in such a supply. They really want to have their workforce thriving. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's been a very good exercise in the way in which, as I say, they've shared best practice because some do this extremely well and others have probably learnt uh, quite a bit from their participation. What would some of those ten points be in, the, in that programme? I presume flexible working practices would yeah, be so, one. Yeah, um, so... I think it starts with um, be rigorous about data collection and do that right from the start so you know what your starting point is and you can track progress. 
Um, leadership from the top is really important. Um, the, you know, the chief executive has got to buy into this and it's got to be um, very clear that he and the whole of the senior team think this is a business important activity for the company. Yeah, so that it, 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 you know, that it's not an add-on and it's, it, the reason for doing this is going to bring real benefits to the business. There is, you know, there's a business case for, for doing this. I heard from a woman the other night who works for a very large internet company here and she said it didn't make sense to her bosses what she was saying until she gave them the data yeah. and linked it to revenue. Yeah. <laughs> then they got it. Yes, yes. So once you can link it to yes. the revenue in clear numbers. And, which is, and there, you know, there's evidence out there that, that companies that have good practices um, of the type that we're talking about here, you know, their earnings per share are high. Now, you, there could be all sorts of other, you know, they might be in different sectors. So sometimes you have to interpret the data carefully, but it does make good, good business sense. Um, and then be careful how you describe the jobs. Make sure that, you know, you're really setting the jobs and describing the jobs, flexible working practices we've talked about. Think through the women's careers and how they will progress just as you do, just as carefully as you do the men. And sometimes there can be an inherent bias there for the best reasons. For example, in, in some companies it may be, you know, to get to the highest levels, you're going to have to have international experience. Plan that with the women, just as you do with the men. Don't assume that they're not going to want to travel. You know, just have the discussions and see how it can be, uh, how it can be planned. So be careful, you know, uh, be careful and make it very clear that you're keen to see women um, be promoted uh, through the company. Sharing best working practices was uh, another one. So, that, and I've left some out because there were ten. They're common sense bias, things. I presume, yeah. Well, uh, yes, and make sure that um, you, you, you know, that you have trained people who are involved in selections and process. Uh, promotions uh, to, to recognize unconscious bias. I heard uh, in President Obama's team they have this new concept where the women who sit around the table frequently don't get heard so they've started this process of amplification so if a woman says something another woman will back it up so it's heard. Have you ever been kind of sidelined or not heard at meetings? Are you just good at getting your speak in there? Um, I think um, not for long. I think I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably quite uh, confident in getting my point across, really. But maybe that's through years of practice. <laughs> did, well, did you have a strong uh, base from home and from school as well? Um, I do think it's important to have a, a supportive um, group around you. I, I would probably say my husband, who you know is a big, big supporter, uh, and uh, I think it's it's really. It's important to have people that have confidence in you and encourage you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. That was Dame Anne Dowling. So if you have a daughter who's pondering a creative, exciting career, let her know that her skills and her talent will be needed in engineering in the future to make the world a better place. Thanks for listening and if you want to get in touch with us, just email info at womeninleadership.ie. We'd welcome any suggestions for topics or for guests you think we should hear more about. Until the next time, goodbye and take care. <laughs>